I want to welcome you again to Door Creek Church. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and this weekend, in fact, many of the staff and our spouses are away up in Lake Geneva for annual retreat where we gather around God's word and encourage each other. It's just a wonderful time, but it's good for me to be with you. I want to say a special hello to those of you across the way in the chapel and those of you up in DeForest. So a couple weeks ago, I was at the uh, open house, the lunch for Ryan and Bree Morrison, and it was really fun after the meal to meet some of the young guys, and these young boys came up to me, and one of them said, hey, are you the guy? And he says, he's the guy, he's the guy. I said, what do you mean? Are you, are you the guy up on the, yeah, that guy? I said, yeah, sometimes I'm up there teaching. He says, man, you look a lot younger in real life. I love that guy. So shout out to you, DeForest. Great to hear Jason and Janelle's story. God love you guys. So glad that you're part of this church. So it's been said that attitude is everything. Do you believe that? That our attitude in life and situations about things and people and situations really makes a big difference. Consider this. Our attitude about work, our attitude about school shapes our work, right? It shapes how we pursue our studies. Our attitudes about cancer, about a terminal illness will make a huge difference how we face that trial. Our attitude about men, our attitude about women will say everything about our relationships with people of the opposite sex. Our attitude about the rich, about the poor, about blacks and whites and Latinos will shape the way that we do life together or don't do life together. Attitude is everything. And if you're a professional athlete, you'll know that there's actually people who are paid to help you train your mind so you're thinking rightly about this competitive sport. So like right now, there's a Cub player, you know, I'm a Cub fan. So Chris Bryant, third baseman, in the last week he got beamed by a face by a fastball right up on his helmet. Just averted a huge injury. But he's not back in the game, and they say it's not anything to do with any physical things. Man, this is a huge thing. He's going to go up to bat, and he's going to be facing more 95-mile-an-hour fastballs, and it's going to all look like what just happened the last time he was there. How do you get through the fear? That's what sports psychologists are paid to do. Now, Peter's no sports psychologist. But he's writing to a group of Christ followers who are going through it. The world at that time was set up against Christians and Christ followers. And they were suffering for doing good, even as that happens in our day. For being Christians, Christ followers on a mission with God, for God in this world. And the pressures were all around. The pressures were everywhere. And Peter wants them and us to know that in the worst of times, right thinking sets up right living, which means there's probably some mid-course corrections that we need to do and to take. That's how chapter 4 falls out. Verses 1 through 6 is all about right thinking, having the attitude 
of Christ, the same attitude of Christ. And then 7 through 11, the right living is, is living like Christ, loving others deeply. And then verses 12 to the end in verse 19, all about those mid-course corrections that we need to make so that we're having the same attitude of Christ and having the same love of Christ for our brothers and sisters. So grab your Bibles. First Peter 4 is where we're at. A quick review is that in chapter 1, Peter urged his brothers and sisters going through it in modern-day Turkey to hold fast to the future grace that is ours in Christ. To not only do that, but to live a, a life that is set apart for God, to be holy, and then to love each other deeply from the heart. And he grounds their devotion to God's grace and mercy that is all part of his great salvation extended to all through Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 says that great salvation has given us a new identity. We're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We, we are the living stones of his temple. He dwells within us. We live for his praise and his glory. And that new identity sets up a new way of living. Chapters 2 and 3 describe that new way of living in relationship to those who are far from God. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He says this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That new life is lived out in relationship to government. Chapter 2, verse 13, we're to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. It shapes how we do marriage. Wives in verse 1 of chapter 3 are to submit to their husbands. Verse 7, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, treating them with respect as the weaker partner, as joint heirs of the grace of God. It's to mark how we face suffering. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And he grounds all of this in Christ and in his sufferings for us. The one who's Hopes were set in God's future grace, who is the realization of God's future kindness when he comes back and makes all things right. The, the one whose life was set apart for God, the one who demonstrates perfectly what it means to love others deeply from the heart. And he says in verse 18 this about Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So in the worst of times, Peter says, remember this, right thinking leads to right living. So here we go, right thinking, verses one through six of chapter four. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves, prepare, equip yourselves also with the same attitude, the attitude of Christ. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. That's a funny phrase. We'll get into that in just a bit. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans, the Gentiles, chose to do. People who are living a godless life, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgy, 
orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, that is to face death, but live according to God in regard to the spirit, eternal life. Right thinking. If you want to think right, Peter says, you've got to have the same attitude of Christ. What does Paul say? Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3. When Jesus is teaching the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, it's all about our attitudes, attitude of humility, that we understand who we are before God. We're poor in spirit. We bring nothing to the table spiritually. We are bankrupt. We mourn over our sin. We hunger and thirst for God's word and his truth. We pursue peace. We rejoice and call ourselves blessed when we are going through persecution. These are the attitudes. These are the attitudes. Peter says you got to think right if you're going to live right. And so our attitudes flow from our thoughts. So here's a syllogism I want you to think about. Our thoughts collectively lead to attitudes about people and things and places and circumstances. Our, our attitudes shape our behavior. Our behavior, when it's repeated, actually become the habits of our life, and the habits of our life describe our character, who we are when nobody's watching. And so the attitudes are formed by our thoughts. They're a collection of our thoughts that bring us to an emotional place, if you will. Sometimes we'll hear people say this, I'm not in a good place. See, our attitude is our emotional location, if you will. You go to Google Maps and you can get the street view of a geographical location and you can spin it all around and get the 360. The attitudes gives us the street view 360 of our heart, of the state of our emotional well-being. Not geographical, but an emotional location. And here Peter is talking specifically about our attitude in suffering when we're suffering for doing good. That's the context. Not suffering for being a jerk, not suffering for doing wrong and being a murderer or a meddler, he says, but suffering for doing good. And what's that Peter says? That whoever suffers for doing good is done with sin? What is he talking about? He's saying if we are willing to suffer for Christ to the point of suffering for bearing his name, following his mission, it's showing that we're done with sin. That is, we're done with giving in to those sinful desires. We're committed to living for God. We're done with the selfishness, the sinful desires. And so Peter's saying attitudes, they arm us, they prepare us, they equip us for suffering our attitudes protect us from the wrong attitudes when we have the attitude of Christ that lead to the wrong desires and the wrong behaviors that marked our former way of life that was reckless, that was wild, that was out of control. So raise the question. So what's exactly the, the connection between suffering for doing good and giving in to those old desires? I think it goes like this. 
You're a follower of Christ. You're doing the right things. You're loving people. You're submitting where he calls you to submit, and you're getting pummeled. Your life isn't getting better. It's getting harder. And you go, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for this. I don't think I want to go on. I'm giving up, and I'm giving in, and I'm going to go back to some of the comfort I got because I'm not getting comfort for following Jesus right now. That's what he's talking about. And what are those desires? All kinds of sensuality, drunkenness, idolatry. And watch what Peter says, because it will explain for many what is happening to you now as a new Christ follower, or what happened back then when you first followed Christ. Your old friends are mystified. They're surprised. They, they don't join. You don't join in all the fun. And, and so they, they, they just pile on the abuse and the insults. Maybe at fun. At the first, it's tongue-in-cheek and mocking you, but it continues, and you're isolated. Why is that happening? Why would they abuse you? Ah, because you now have Christ's spirit in you, and Christ is the light of the world, and his spirit now is shining in and through you, and there are people who don't want to be exposed by the light of Christ that keeps reminding us that we need Christ. They don't want that. They push it away, and so they push you away. So to fend them off from turning back, he reminds them, hey, we're accountable for God. We'll all stand before God, and it's the gospel that saves us from that judgment that we might live forever with God. All right, right thinking. What is right thinking? you got to have the attitude of Christ. So it raises a question. So what was Christ's attitude about suffering? Three things. First, he understood it was the Father's will. So he would say in many places, like in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, to his disciples that I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are going to they're, they're persecute me, and they're, they're going to kill me, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And I must go to Jerusalem, and I must suffer because it was the Father's will. And yet he didn't trivialize the suffering. He didn't, he didn't pretend like, oh, it's not really a big deal. It was a huge deal to Christ. That's what he's praying about. The night before he's crucified, Father, if there's another way for you to bring out your plan of salvation, then take the cross, this cup, away from me. Give me a plan B, but not my will. Yours be done. He knew it was the Father's will. He submitted to the Father's will. He also knew this, that God would do something greater through his sufferings. It would be to the Father's glory. It would be for our good, for our salvation. He understood that God never wastes suffering of his people, of his children. He believed that with all of his heart. And there's a third thing about Jesus' attitude. that Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He actually had a, an attitude of joy, not because it felt good and he was some kind of sadomasochist. No, it wasn't about that at all. He just believed with all of his heart and he knew the end of the story that his suffering would bring this greater joy of us together with him, of he making all things right. And so in the worst of times, remember right thinking. Right thinking is so critical. It leads to right living attitude is everything, especially our attitude in suffering. So what's our approach to suffering? What's our reaction when we suffer for doing good? Have you, has that ever happened to you? 
That didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. It just doesn't happen in persecuted places where you, it's illegal to be a Christian. It actually happens today in your relationships, at work, in extended family relationships, where you're doing good and you suffer for it. It is a really confusing time. Like, what is going on here? I'm doing the right thing, and I'm receiving all this dissonant wrongness. It's hard. Peter says, hey, long before I preached this sermon to you, wrote this letter to you, and I, I, I lived this out. And it's this amazing story in Acts chapter 5 where Peter and some of the disciples are preaching in broad daylight about Christ and who he is and heralding the gospel. And the religious leaders, the same ones that crucified Christ, they bring him in before the Sanhedrin, that council of 70, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they say, you knock it off. No more preaching. We're going to beat you up and we're going to shut you down if you do this again. Peter says, hey, hey here, let's just be clear. We're going to have to follow God rather than man. And then it says this in chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What name? For Christ. So look up the word attitude in the dictionary. And here's what you read. Attitude. A settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. I love that. The dictionary has it right. Attitudes and behavior go together because our attitudes set up our action. And that's where he's going next. From right thinking, thinking after Christ, his attitude, to right living, living, loving like Christ. Verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. So, right living. We're to love like Christ. It's this repeated theme. Love each other. In the church, he's talking about right now, in the church, love each other deeply from the heart. Peter's saying, you know you've got Christ's attitude if you're sharing Christ's love. You know you've got the right attitude if you've got the right behavior. And look how Peter works it out. It's so practical. It moves so far beyond some of the shallowness of our lines and cliches that are so easy to parrot in the church. Peter mentions three ways in which our deep love is, is seen in the church. First, we share God's mercy and forgiveness to each other because we have the ability to really hurt each other. Two, we share our home and our food, our table, our fellowship with others. Three, we share our gifts to serve Others. So first, you know you love deeply from the heart because you share God's mercy. You forgive because love covers a multitude of sins. And here's the thing to remember. 
when the church is persecuted, it doesn't just, man, bring us all together and we just grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Actually, one of the things that can happen is when life is hard out there, it's easy, easy to kind of rough each other up. Does, does that ever happen to you? you got a teacher whose life is falling apart personally, and they're taking it on the class. Your boss is taking it out on the staff. Your parents are at it, and they're taking it out on you, the kids. Your husband's at it, and he's taking it out. It happens all the time. Hurt people hurt people. So love covers a multitude of sins. Well, that's a great phrase. I love that. How so? Why, why does love cover a multitude of sins? Because love is bigger than sins. Let me say this. Love is huge. Why would we say love is huge? <laughs> what does the Bible say? The Bible says God is love. If God is love, then love is connected to the largeness, to the eternal nature of God, who is eternal, who's infinite, all-powerful, all-holy, all-loving, all-good. Love is huge. Love is huge. What Peter's not saying is the reason love covers a multitude of sins because you just kind of sweep it under the carpet. Saying, you know, it never happened. Saying, you know, it's not really a big deal. Lies. It's a big deal when they sinned against you. And that hurt has impacted your life and it's impairing your relationships and the church's ability to share the love of Christ. How in the world do we have an ability to talk to the world about how much God loves them when we can't love each other with this love that supposedly transforms the world? It's huge. So what Peter is saying is forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. So here's the illustration I was thinking of. Rock, paper, scissors, right? Rock, paper, Scissors. All right, here's the deal. We know that the rock is stronger than the scissors, right? And we know that the, the paper covers rock. What does that mean? It's stronger. It wins. Love wins. It's greater. It's greater than any sin. Now, here's the deal. You know what happened. You know it was wrong. You know you have reasons to be angry. It's justified. But because you're committed to living life like Christ, you're going to choose mercy. Mercy isn't pretending it didn't happen. Mercy has eyes wide open to exactly what happened, the wrong of what happened, and you're seeing that, but you're extending mercy. You're extending forgiveness because you don't want to live a life of bitterness. You don't want a root of bitterness to become a sequoia tree of bitterness that you're running into all the time. You know people like that? Oh man, there's this wrong in their life. And every time you get together with them, they're talking about it. They're talking about it. You don't want that. You don't want that to be a cancer. You're going to forgive. What is forgiveness? Literally, it means to send it away. You go, I, I can't do that. I can't do that because they've not even owned up to it. Well, you send it away because what you're doing when you forgive something has nothing to do with their vertical relationship with God. It has everything to do with your relationship with them. And that offense is coming to your life, and there's pain that is associated with that. And you're sending away the pain because you don't want it to corrode your own heart. And you keep sending. There's nothing wrong with your forgiveness. If you go, man, I forgave them, but I, I feel like I got to forgive. Yeah, that's it. just exactly how it goes. You got to forgive them again. And the longer you go, the more infrequent those times become. I can't forgive because it's too hard. Of course it's too hard. 
But Christ's spirit is in you. The same spirit that was in Christ when he looked down from the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. Who? Not the people who are saying, oh, Jesus, we, we've lost our mind. We don't know what we're doing. We are so sorry. Please, please forgive us. No, the people who are spitting at him, the people who are driving nails through his hands, the people who had the bogus kangaroo court, the people who insulted him and mocked him, Father, forgive them. Ah, totally impossible. That's why we need Christ's spirit. And with Christ's spirit, it's not impossible. There's a second way we know that we love others. Deeply from the heart, because we share hospitality, our home, our food, a meal. I love how the NLT puts it. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Stay. Offering hospitality, that word hospitality literally means the love of strangers. And he says, when you do that, there's no grumbling, there's no complaining. What does that mean? It's hugely informative. If it would be easy to offer hospitality and at the same time complain about it, it means that it's not always convenient. It means that it requires something of us, some sacrifice, open hearts, open doors, open homes. Jesus did a lot of ministry around the table. And he received a lot of criticism who he did life with around the table. He was eating with sinners with tax collectors, with prostitutes. Oh, my word. People are going, how could you do that? Don't you know who you're eating with? What do you mean you came back from Matthew's party? Don't you know who Matthew's friends are? They're, they're, they're a bunch of cheats. They're scoundrels. They've sold out to Rome. You should have nothing to do with those people. The table in the Bible is this beautiful place of celebration, and that's to continue today. Hey, parents, the table is not a place of correction. It's not a place of discipline. It's a place of celebrating life, of celebrating the life that God has given. Maybe that's your roommates. And, and this is a lost art in our day. It's a place to extend kindness and grace, a warm welcome and honor. I remember so vividly the times that we would gather in Ken and Margaret Taylor's home for this simple meal, Ken Taylor, the author of the Living Bible, president of Tyndale Publishing, back in our days in Wheaton. And he would call on a Saturday morning through a list of people. He'd say, hey, Mark, are you and Lori available for supper tonight? Just a light supper. And I'd ask Lori, we'd go, yeah, we're, we're available. Can we'd love to come over. And here's what it was. Soup, salad, and a piece of bread. A great conversation. And I always remember on the way out the door, he'd gather around, he'd just pray this beautiful prayer of blessing over our marriage and our family. It was just beautiful. And it was simple. It was simple. The family meal has been lost in our culture. And you would be wise, whether you're married or single, to find community around the table. And there's something beautiful about sharing a meal and actually lingering around a meal, putting on that pot of tea after the meal, just to stay there even a little longer. Oh, how we love to do that in Europe. Their pace and rhythm of life, so much slower around a meal and community. We're too fast about this. We're missing the great blessings of that. The table has always been this beautiful picture of what God desires for us, community and blessing, where we share more than food, but our love and encouragement, our laughter and our tears. And when Jesus talks about heaven, he talks about a feast around a table. 
Now, there's a third way. We know that we're loving each other deeply, and that's we share our God-given gifts with each other as we serve each other. Verse 10, he says, each one of us has a gift. What's he talking about? He's talking about these spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4 talks about it right here. In, in 1 Peter 4, he gives kind of like this catalog of gifts. He says there's speaking gifts, like teaching, what I'm doing right now, like encouragement, like wisdom that you're sharing, right, discernment that you're sharing. And then there's these serving gifts, like helps, like administration, like mercy, like, like all these different helping gifts. And you each have a gift. It's a spiritual gift that was given to you by the Holy Spirit when you trusted in Christ and the Spirit came into your life and he's given you something unique, spiritual abilities to do a unique thing, grow the body to be more like Christ so that together we're better fitted as this local expression of Christ to reach more people for Christ. Each one of you use these gifts, not just the natural talents, but he's talking about these special gifts. And we shouldn't surprise us that our natural talents and our spiritual gifts are all working together. Speaking, as it were, the very words of God, serving in Christ's strength, not our own, all for his honor. So how loving are we? Not very if we are miserly with mercy, stingy with our hospitality or hoarding our gifts, unwilling to share the words that build or the acts of service that grow people to be more like Christ. Right thinking, right living. When times are hard, we've got to have Christ's attitude and we've got to have Christ's love. So that calls for some mid-course corrections. Verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, the name of Christ. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So here's his conclusion. So then... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So there's some changes that Peter is suggesting need to happen if we're going to have Christ's attitude and share Christ's love. First correction has to do with expectations. Don't be surprised. It's going to happen. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, trouble, suffering. Jesus said, you want to be my follower? Take up your cross and follow me. This is going to happen. Not forever, but for now. For now. Change your expectations about suffering. Change your emotions in suffering. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because you know God has got a greater purpose. He's got a greater purpose for me. That like James says, I can consider it all joy because these trials are, are going to test my faith. They're going to build me up, make me stronger, give me endurance and perseverance so that I become more and more like Christ. Change your emotion about suffering. Rejoice. 
Double check why you're suffering. Hey, you think you're suffering for Christ? No, you're not. You're just suffering for doing evil. You're, you're being a meddler and a busybody. You're, you're a murderer and you hate people. You're a thief and you steal people. Their reputation or whatever it is. You're not suffering for doing good. You are suffering for doing wrong and evil. Double check the cause. There's a fourth mid-course correction. And it goes like this. Change your conclusions about suffering. Don't be ashamed, he says. Oh, man, you can think when, when you're being uh, suffering, you're going, oh, man, I, I must be suffering because I've messed up and God is mad at me and I'm a pathetic, weak loser. And that's definitely the world's conclusion. You are so pathetic. You are so weak. Don't, don't be ashamed. But praise God. So he wraps it up with a final conclusion and summary. He says, you got to do two things. You got to commit yourself to God. You got to place your life in the tough times and say, God, I'm trusting you. It doesn't feel right. I don't know where this is going, but I'm committed to trusting you. Commit and entrust yourself to God, your loving creator. I'm thinking, why does he say entrust to your loving creator? Why didn't he say entrust to your loving father? Why didn't he say trust your almighty God? And I was thinking about creation. And the story of the Bible begins with creation. And it tells us that when creation first starts, it's formless and void. There's chaos. And the God of creation brings beauty and order out of chaos. Entrust your life to the creator God who can take formless things, things that don't make sense, things that hurt, and bring about beauty from the midst of that. And then commit yourself to doing good, to loving others deeply. We call ourselves Christ followers. The question at the end of the day is, do we have Christ's attitude? Do we have Christ's love. Imagine what could change in our heart circumstances right now if we had Christ's attitude. Imagine the change that could happen at your campus, in, in your marriage, in your family, your extended family, with your friendships, at work, wherever it is that you do life. If, if God's love this huge love that covers over a multitude of sin. We're more operative in your life. Imagine it. So together, church, let's entrust ourselves to our loving creator and do good. Let's pray. Father God, our only hope of doing this is holding on to your son who each and every moment of his life here on earth entrusted himself, committed himself to you in faithful, loving service. And our only hope is to be connected to the source of that love, which is Christ and your spirit bearing fruit that we might have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And so, Father God, for those who are going through it right now, suffering for doing good, would you encourage them to not give up and turn back to the old things, but to trust you and to live a life that is marked by a deep love. Lord, may that continue to grow in our church and then through our church 
to this community, to this nation, to this world that you so love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.